Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. year and a half or so, there's been a lot of talk about what exactly or who exactly is essential. Essential being who and what we can't live without. And it's been interesting to see what everyone thinks about the church. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Is the church essential? It's been an interesting... uh, comment, I guess, on our culture to watch what it thinks about the church. Most of us, I think, feel terribly inferior to the world around us. We buy into the idea that the church is irrelevant, that it's not an important segment of society. We can just shut it down. That's fine. But on the contrary, if what Jesus said and what Jesus did is true, And if this really is God's word to man, and that by it we learn the truth, if the gospel is true, that if through the gospel men can be forgiven of their sins and can be born again to new life and have everlasting life, and if we really are, as the church ministers of reconciliation for God then the church is the most essential element in this world. The church is most essential. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see just how essential the church is as it advances the gospel. In Acts, the church is birthed and it grows rapidly and not in easy circumstances. It's a new movement, an untrusted movement, It's in a completely pagan culture of its time that is sometimes dead set against it. It has no proven leadership, no technological tools to use to reach the world, no Facebook, no Instagram. And at times it faces enormous obstacles like division between Jew and Gentile. But because God is with this Church, there's nothing and no one that can stop it. And the church in the book of Acts is birthed and they take the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome to the ends of the earth. And it changes the world. This world has been changed because of it. Today we're going to read the first 11 verses and we're going to look at some of the directions that Acts is going to take us. I could say some of the directions or maybe the, the emphasis that we find in Acts. But let's look at the introduction first. Uh, verses 1 through 3. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had been by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so the first thing we always do whenever we enter a new book is we discuss a little bit about who the letter is written to and who the letter is written by, that sort of thing, when it was written. And in verse 1, we see that it's written to a man named Theophilus. And that name might sound familiar to you because uh, that's whom the gospel of Luke is also written to. So there's both internal and external sources outside of the Bible that affirm Luke's authorship. And in the early 60s sometime, uh, not 1960s, but 60s AD, and we're not going to go into detail on that other than to say that it's neat to see the way that Luke sort of joins in on the travels in the book of Acts. He'll use the first person, we, and then they. So he'll, he'll join Paul in his missionary journeys, and then he'll stay somewhere, and Paul will move on, and then he'll join back with him again. So um, that's one of the internal sources that affirm Luke's authorship. Um, there are times when he, when he joins the missionary travels, times when he leaves. And Luke was a highly educated doctor, and his, his Greek, they say, is just the most sophisticated of all the New Testament documents, especially these, these first few verses here. Um, the Gospel of Luke is what is referred to here in verse 1 there as the first account that he composed. Um, Acts would then be the, the second account. So if Luke's the first account, Acts is the second account. So they're actually, and you think about it, they're not two different books with two different subjects. They're more like two volumes written on the same subject, what Jesus did and, and what he continues to do in the book of Acts. So same continuing subject written by the same author to the same recipient. For a time, actually, Luke and Acts circulated together as one set. However, after, after time, as through time, Luke was eventually compiled with the other uh, three Gospels, and Acts was kind of separated from it. But you can you think of Luke and Acts, they would have traveled together for a time as, as one set, two-volume set, maybe on two rolls of papyrus that would have been 35 feet long. And I thought about measuring this room to figure out what 35 feet looked like, but I think you have an idea right? It's a pretty long scroll. You get any bigger than that, and it was just awkward to carry around. But Luke is actually the longest uh, book in the New Testament by word count, and Acts is the second. So Luke wrote, wrote a lot. That's just kind of an interesting side note. Um, we see his purpose in writing, though, <clears throat> back in the first account, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, 
to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so here we see the purpose. Luke wants this man, Theophilus, to know the exact truth about what has taken place with Jesus and what he did in the, the Christian movement. And who is this most excellent Theophilus that Luke is writing to? Uh, I don't think we can say exactly. Some think it might be Luke's master. You remember when last week I said uh, that doctors were, could have been slaves back then? Doctors might have masters. Well, now, now we're the slaves of the doctors, aren't we? And their bills that they send us. No, it's not just them. But um, it could have been Luke's master. He could have had a master. It also wouldn't have been uncommon for a wealthy patron, some wealthy individual, to actually commission someone to write some sort of historical account in their name. So it would have been all about them, I guess, in a sense, trying to, I don't know, kind of leave something behind in the family name. I forget what you call that, but I'll think of it as soon as this sermon is over. But based on similar ways that Luke uses this title, Most Excellent, um, in Acts, when Paul is before, like when Paul is before a, a Roman governor, Roman officials, um, it suggests that maybe Luke is writing to a Roman government official. He might actually be defending Christianity apologetically um, before Rome during a time of much persecution that's going on. So he could be, uh, maybe this guy is a, a seeking man. Maybe, maybe Luke's trying to win him over with a more favorable and accurate view of, of what they've heard about Jesus and about the apostles. Uh, whoever Theophilus is exactly, Luke is going to do some seriously hard work researching and writing for him. Uh, remember, Luke couldn't just go to a library and, and get the information that he gets in the book of Acts. Um, he doesn't have Unger's Bible Dictionary. He doesn't have Strong's New Testament Concordance. He doesn't have these things. He personally has to go and investigate all of this firsthand as an eyewitness and interviewing other eyewitnesses. So he's kind of like a news porter who's, who's going around and, and, and writing all of this down, right? writing down the things that have happened, writing down the things that are happening. And so think about how critical this is in our approach to the Bible. There's no other holy book out there like this that is written like this with detailed, accurate information. I mean, that's the whole purpose in writing. It's so that you can know exactly what happened. I was talking to someone just this week who said they'd read the Quran, and there's just, it's not like that. It's not detailed like the Bible is. It's not as, it's not a historical accurate account. And so this is, this is awesome for us, us to know. He's writing history, and yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit inspires it. And so it's inspired history. An accurate historical report. Most people think the Bible's just oh, just a, a big religious book with a bunch of big religious teachings. But this suggests otherwise, doesn't it? This is the inspired history of Christian origins. Actually, there was a man named William Ramsey, and it's funny, hardly ever heard of the guy. 
You might have heard of him once, but his name came up twice this week, once in my, my study and once in a documentary I was watching on archaeology in, in Turkey. Um, that's what I do for fun. <laughs> Archaeological finds in Turkey. Um, I was watching a documentary about a guy who found the oldest uh, synagogue in Turkey. It was pretty neat. But anyway, this, there, this, this guy named William Ramsey came up, and he was this brilliant atheistic man, and he decided he was going to trace the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts to try and disprove the historicity of the New Testament. So this guy was a, a German, and this was when a lot of the higher criticism and things were going on, and they didn't believe it, and so he's actually going to disprove it. Well, he goes, and he's, he's traveling through Turkey, and it says he, he looked for evidence in the landscape, in the ruins, and in the titles of local rulers and magistrates, and he visited many foreign cities, not common to those who had lived in Jerusalem. Ramsey became overwhelmed with the evidence that the book of Acts was absolutely true and factual, and he became a believer because of it. So because Luke wrote this exact historical account, Ramsey ends up believing. That's the whole reason he wrote it, right? It worked, (laughs) and it works today. He said every time he turned over a shovel, he found evidence of exactly those things that Luke described. So he, came, he actually comes to this conclusion that Luke was a historian of the first rank. One of the greatest historians to live. He said Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Pretty neat stuff, huh? In verse 3, Luke tells us how Jesus presents himself alive after his passion, after his suffering with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. And you can read about some of that at the end of Luke's gospel, how Jesus ate with them, with the disciples. He drank with them. I've always wanted to be there on the, on the sea, the edge of the, you know, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, uh, eating fish with Jesus after his resurrection. That had to be something. I hope we get a, get a glimpse of what that was like in heaven. I'm sure we will. And uh, anyway, there they, they saw him, they touched him, they spoke with him. Why? And why 40 days? Why such a long time? Because it's critical for Jesus to convince them that he is alive and for us to be convinced as well. Jesus gave it some time to convince them, and then they, they end up giving their lives for what they witness. Notice in verse 1, that the first account, Luke, also is only the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? Luke's only the, the beginning, and how can that be? Because his work's not done, is it? It continues through the apostles. Look at verses 4 through 5. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so that's the second uh, bulletin in your, or second outline number, number two. The Holy Spirit comes as promised. The Holy Spirit comes as promised. And Luke is only the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach because Jesus is going to continue to work through them by the Holy Spirit who's going to come and he's going to indwell them and baptize them and empower them to carry out his work Because we have the Holy Spirit, we can say with Paul, 
And we're going to learn about this in Colossians probably next week. We have Christ in us. Paul can say that this is the hope of glory, Christ, Christ in us. Christ leaves, yeah, but he's still in them through the Holy Spirit who indwells them. And Jesus had taught them uh, in John 14 through 16, actually, that it is, it's advantageous. Uh, it's expedient that he goes away. Why? Because if, if Jesus goes, he'll then send the Holy Spirit who's going to be their helper, and he's going to empower them. And he's going to come and fill their lives, give them new power, new life, and uh, new, new abilities to carry out his work, to advance the gospel. So he's going to give them what they need through the Spirit to continue his work and his teaching. And this might be the greatest emphasis in the book of Acts right here that you're going to see. The Holy Spirit is necessary to carry out the mission. The mission to advance the gospel. See, that's a more practical element in this historical writing. We're going to learn through, the, through studying the history of the church that the church today must also depend on the Spirit of God to accomplish its mission. It's going to progress today the same way it progressed back at the beginning. It's not by our efforts. It's not by our strength, not our self-confidence. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're just jars of clay, you know, but he has put treasure in the jars of clay. So anyway, we'll get to that next time. Without the Holy Spirit, guys, the church cannot fulfill her mission. This may be the most dominating theme. I, I, uh, I found a good meme years ago. And I had to recreate it for you because I haven't forgotten it. Um, this is what a lot of Christians, I think, are like. It's like God has empowered them to do the work of the ministry, but they're still relying on their own power. Here's a guy, he's got a visor and he's got sunglasses, but he's still trying to do it on his own. You know, <laughs> just trying to cover the sunlight with his hand. And it's like, look, God's given you everything you need, but you're still trying to do it on your own. This book, the book of Acts, is going to drill into our minds over and over and over again that without the Spirit of God, you got nothing. You can't do a thing. You can't do, I don't know, give me something small, I'll say it. You can't do anything. We got nothing. But, even though Jesus is gone, think about this. Through the Holy Spirit, he's going to be with us to the end of the age. He's with them to the end of the age. In fact, even though Jesus has left, he's still so connected to these disciples that when he leaves, that even when the church is persecuted, Jesus takes personal offense and he'll say things like, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul's persecuting the church, but he, Jesus is so connected to the church and to his people that he's going to take offense. He's going to say, why are you persecuting me? More on that later. But historically, since the second century, this book has been known as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, more recently, um, some tried to change the name to the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That, that hasn't really stuck um, 
I think it's, it's difficult to name. Like it's, it's difficult to come up with a name for this book because the emphasis is not just on the apostles. It's not just on the Holy Spirit. It's on Jesus as well. It's on, it's on the church. So I think if we tried to sum it all up in one sentence, we would say this, is the, this book is the continuing acts of Jesus through the apostles and his people, his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you got Jesus, the apostles, the church, and the Holy Spirit all involved. I think we should just stick with Acts, because <laughs> Acts just sums it all up. It's a book about action. Jesus, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, all of them in action, working together to carry out the mission. But what this tells us, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to come uh, like this, there's an emphasis here on the Holy Spirit coming, it it, it it signifies to it this to us that that there's a new work of God that's going to begin, and we're going to see that in chapter two in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit kind of came and went upon men as they walked with God. But when you get to the New Testament and you you read clear New Testament doctrine, the Holy Spirit will baptize individuals into Christ the moment they believe, and He never leaves them, and He never forsakes them. So there's a new work of the Spirit that's going to take place here. So that's, that's something that's, that's new that begins in the book of Acts, and it's a major privilege that we enjoy today. Like, I'm so glad we live in the church age. I'll tell you that much. Um, having, having said that, though, uh, something critical to remember about this book is that it is a transitional book. Keep that in mind. Uh, you want to you want to keep that in mind as we go throughout this book. There's a lot of neat things that are, that are going to take place during this unique apostolic period that we're studying. This oh, I don't know, 30, 30 years or so that we're going to go through in the book of Acts. But if we forget that this is a transitional book, we're going to be tempted to treat it like a church practice handbook, right? So we'll we'll end up coming out of the book of Acts with a lot of bad theology, kind of like. Uh, you know, if we expect oh, God to do the same thing he did when he converted the Samaritans in chapter 8, we're going to end up with some really bad theology. So remember, this is a transitional book. There's some things that are going to take place in this book that were only going to happen one time. It's awesome. It's miraculous. But remember, this is like, this is like looking at the baby pictures of the church. We're going back in time. We're looking at the baby pictures, what it was like how it was birthed, and we're going to watch it develop. And then uh, you see the doctrine of the church actually developed more in the New Testament epistles to clarify things that went on. Anyway, keep that in mind. Uh, number three, the Jesus' commissioning, commissioning of the disi- disciples, apostles. I'm going from disciple to apostle now. Um, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time... You are restoring the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the apostles they uh, ask Jesus here, um, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And this is, uh, 
an interrupter, we could say. This is an interruption in the narrative. He's, he's talking about leaving and them going out into the world, and they're still concerned about the kingdom of Israel, right? So their Jewish minds are still focused on um, this literal geopolitical restoration of Israel. This is what they've read about in the Old Testament. This was the expectation they had all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Remember that? They were looking forward to these thrones and, and Jesus establishing the kingdom. And they're, they're just in expectation for it still. And uh, a lot of commentators will give them a hard time thinking that, well, they just don't get it yet. Well, actually, they do. I think they understand the Old Testament scriptures in that uh, the Old Testament frequently joined the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the promised kingdom that was coming. Right? So, so they're trying to put this all of this together. He, Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming. They're thinking kingdom. And before we're too hard on them, what believers still argue about today, even with a complete Bible... We have the complete Bible, and we're still arguing about the kingdom and what it is. And what they didn't understand, and what we often don't understand, is that the kingdom was going to come in different stages. So the kingdom, in a sense, was at hand in his first coming, right? It was at hand. He, the king came, and he paid for sins. He made it possible for us, through faith in him, to be restored to the kingdom of heaven. Through faith in Christ, we can be transferred from the dominion of darkness to the, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He paid for our sins. But the theocratic kingdom, the kingdom where Christ comes and He rules and He reigns in Jerusalem over all the earth, that is going to be postponed through His rejection. It was offered the first time, but they rejected the Messiah. Israel rejected the Messiah. And now that sort of... Uh, that's delayed. I guess that waits for, for when he comes again the second time. The expectation is still there today, isn't it? Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We're still praying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We're, we're tired of the political nonsense out there. We're tired of the junk. We're tired of the authoritarians. We want Jesus to come, and we want righteousness and peace to reign. That's what we long for. That's what we're praying for. It's still going to come. But this is another one of the major emphases in Acts. Um, it begins with this question, is that at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? And now if you were to turn to the last verse of the book of Acts, you would see that it says this. He stayed there two full years in his own rented quarters, this is Paul, and was welcoming all who came to them. Look at what he's doing. Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And so you're going from talking about the kingdom to now Paul's in Rome preaching the kingdom unhindered. And so what Acts is going to reveal for us is this process from how um, the, the talk about the kingdom went from this only Jewish expectation for a geopolitical Messiah to understanding that there is, during this church age, a mysterious spiritual kingdom. 
like Jesus taught. Remember in the parables of Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, he kept talking about after he was rejected by the religious rulers, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And so there's a, a mystery element to it that's taking place in our day. And so um, the kingdom of God is still working, mysteriously restoring people to it and restoring people to the, the ways of the kingdom. We're learning to live in light of how the kingdom is, how, in light of how the kingdom lives, until he returns to establish it. And he's going to establish his kingdom with, now, both Jews and Gentiles. So you're going to see how the Gentiles get included in this. Um, this Jew and Gentile emphasis is seen in the way that Peter and Paul, these are the main characters in the book of Acts, they're going to be paralleled throughout this book. And, and Peter's mainly going to be ministering to the circumcised, the Jews, and Paul to the Gentiles, the, the uncircumcised. And you're going to see that he desires both Jew and Gentile in his coming kingdom. It's, it's fantastic. Sorry if this is boring you with a lot of detail. I ate this stuff up this week. I loved it. The apostles' power. See that? The apostles receive power, and they're thinking kingdom, right? Thrones. What's their power going to be for? Someday, yeah, they'll, they'll sit on 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel when he comes. But until then, what's their power for? Power to do the work of Christ, restoring people to the kingdom. It's pretty fantastic. When's the theocratic kingdom going to come? Jesus says this, it's not for you to know. <laughs> don't set any dates, boys. Right? <laughs> uh, don't, don't quit your jobs and just wait. Okay? Be busy. Do what I've told you to do. Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to come. He's not denying it, is he? He's saying it's delayed. And in the meantime, you have an assignment. Stay focused on the assignment. Stay focused on your mission. Your mission is to be witnesses, advancers of the gospel. You see, what, what people need is the gospel today. Just like back then, the, they, people needed the gospel. Then they need it today. And I'm afraid that we, sometimes we get so focused on the end times and what's the mark of the beast and all this stuff. And Look, guys, we haven't even entered Revelation chapter 6 yet. Okay, <laughs> But there's a lot of people so caught up in that, trying to read Revelation into the day today, and what's the mark of the beast? That they've lost the gospel. They've forgotten the mission. The mission, people don't need to know that yet. They need the gospel. They need to understand that Jesus died for their sins. They need to understand that, that no matter what's going on, they can have new life in Christ. They can spend eternity with God. I mean, think about that. Sins forgiven, new life in Christ, eternity with God. If that's, if that's true, shouldn't that prioritize your life? Getting that message out there, that's what Jesus is communicating here. He's emphasizing single-mindedness. Giving your life for the most essential message in the world. The mission requires single-mindedness to this essential message. That's what you see throughout the book of Acts. Men giving their lives for this message. Joel just read a verse about that. The Apostle Paul, considering his life of, of nothing, he says, my entire goal is just to testify to the grace of God. 
That's, what, that's where his life, that's what he gave his life for. I like to think in, in terms of hunting. You know, there, there's a lot that goes into hunting. You, you do a lot of planning and, and pre, preparing. You do a lot of practicing. You do a lot of packing. Uh, you do a lot of scouting. You can do cyber scouting now. People got their game cameras up for months before season even starts, and then they do scouting in person. Uh, they, they, they do a lot. They, they stalk that animal, right? But there's a lot of, a lot of aspects that, that go into hunting. But in the end, they're doing all of that with one goal in mind. And what is it? Tagging that animal. They want to tag that animal. They want to bag that animal. They want to put that thing in their freezer. And when it comes to the church, there's a lot of different aspects involved. There's a lot of different ministries. But ultimately, we need to remember we got one target. Our target is to advance the gospel. We, gospel. we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We want, to, we want to proclaim the gospel. We want to live the gospel, all with the hope that people will come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and find new life in Him and learn to walk with Him. Making disciples. I think we tend to get distracted by a lot of things today. There's a lot of good things that we can get involved in. There's a lot that, that we can do, even good things that become our mission. But we've got to remember that even in everything we do, even if it's good, you know, we've got to remember that the ultimate mission, the ultimate goal in anything we do is to advance the gospel, to bring everlasting hope, to bring joy to bring life to people who need it. I want us to make this time in the book of Acts a time where our focus, where we're just, I don't know, we're, we're focused on our mission and we don't forget it. No matter what we're doing, even if we're just, you know, we're, we're in the nursery watching children, our mission is to advance the gospel. If we're involved in some organization in town, Let's get to know people. Let's advance the gospel there. If you're hunting, here's, here's my, um, my way of sort of uh, justifying my hunting. If you're hunting, read the Bible. Get to know your Bible while you're sitting there. Don't just sit there and do nothing. Use hunting to advance the gospel. I got a share of a men's game feed last year because I'm a hunter. I, I read the Bible through a couple of times in my tree stand. Uh, I feel like I got saved in a tree stand. But <laughs> whatever we're doing, we're advancing the gospel. Amen? But notice uh, Acts, verse eight, Acts 1, verse 8. This is the theme verse and the, the outline for the book of Acts. Look at the, the geographical circles that enlarge here. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That would have been their hometown. In Judea, that would have been like their country. Samaria, it gets even bigger. That's their neighboring country. And then the remote parts of the earth, basically everywhere. That's where you're going to be my witnesses at. And so with this statement, Jesus is now removing geographical boundaries for them. He's, these guys are Israelites. They're Jews, right? They're thinking it's all going to take place here. Well, Jesus is saying, look, I'm sending you out. You're actually going to do the opposite of what you're used to. Israel 
was supposed to be this shining light on a hill and in the middle of the world and, and nations would pass through it going from Africa to Europe to Asia and, and people would stop into Israel and they'd see that there's something different about these people. Well, Jesus is saying the exact opposite is going to happen now. I'm giving you a new life. I'm giving you a new message. You're to go and you're to proclaim this throughout all the earth. Don't just sit back and wait for people to come to you. You go to them. And that's the flow of the book of Acts right there. You're gonna, we're going to watch it go from Jerusalem to the remote parts of the earth. And it's interesting, that last verse of, of Acts, it just it ends kind of un- abruptly. It's almost like it's unfinished. I think he actually uh, ran out of papyrus on his 35-foot roll. But uh, it ends ab- abruptly, and I think there's a reason for that. I think it's intentional to say that the mission's to continue. The the mission, the task is it's unfinished. There's there's still more to do. We're not done with the mission yet. It's an unfinished story that we're all called to be a part of. All of us advancing the gospel with our words and with our lives, proclaiming it and living it. Look at uh your last text here for today. Jesus goes in his ascension with a promise. So the Holy Spirit came as promised. Jesus leaves with a promise. After he had said these things, verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so this is what we call the ascension of Jesus. After commissioning the disciples, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And for a lot of my Christian life, I thought of this This is a normal cloud, and he just went way up into the stratosphere, but it was probably more like a Shekinah glory cloud, like you might see in the Old Testament. Uh, God's presence, remember, he dwelt in a cloud on Mount Sinai uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration with Israel in the wilderness. God was in a pillar of cloud, right? So even when he was in the temple, there was this Shekinah glory that was in there. So that's, that's what I think this cloud is. This is a way that he is exalted as God himself entering back into the glories of heaven through the cloud. But it's a special moment because it's going to be a while before he returns. And look at how he's going to return. The angel said, he's going to come in the same way you've watched him go. What do they mean by that? He's coming visibly and he's coming physically at his second coming. The Holy Spirit came with a promise. Jesus left with this promise that he's going to return. And he's going to establish his kingdom when he comes back. Uh, He's coming back, right? Same spot, same area. Mount of Olives. He's not coming back anywhere else. Zechariah 14.4 says he's going to come and his feet are going to stand. They're going to touch that Mount of Olives. That mountain is going to be split. But you can read about that if you want, Zechariah 14. One of the interesting questions I've been asked before 
uh, in our last series in Mark was, if we are servants, what good is an absent master? You know, Jesus, Jesus left and we're supposed to serve him. What's up, what's up with that? And it's an honest question. What Acts is telling us is that he's not absent. Yes, yes, he left, but he's still with us. Actually, it's because he left that his presence is now in us. And you, you can read about that in John 14 through 16. It's actually expedient. It's advantageous that he goes away. Remember that. Because he leaves, he can send the Holy Spirit who is going to empower us. He's going to work in us and through us, just like he did in these apostles' lives. In this engagement project Bible study we went through at my house recently, the question was asked, what's the greatest thing that Jesus ever did as a leader? What's the greatest thing he ever did as a leader? And the answer was that he left. And to demonstrate that, Del Tackett gives this illustration using horses. Uh, when him and his dad used to ride horses, they would they'd ride horses on the trails in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, he noticed that whenever his horse's nose got just a little bit in front of the other horse's nose, his horse's ears would go forward. And it would be alert, and it would be, you know, cautious. It's always looking for... For, for different cautions, and it's just, it senses responsibility being the lead horse. But if that horse's nose gets behind his dad's horse, well, the ears go back, and his horse just kind of, you know, quits paying attention and just says, oh, I'm a happy horse, you know. It's not paying attention anymore. And so he would just do that all the time with their noses, and he'd quit messing with their ears, his dad would say. Well, when Jesus ascended, Hebrews tells us, Jesus has been very busy. He's been busy in a heavenly ministry, in the heavenly temple, as our high priest. Remember, Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. Right now, he's, he's our priest, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And he, he hasn't been up there twiddling his thumbs, has he? He's not kicking back at the right hand of God in his recliner, watching Sports Center, eating potato chips, drinking Pepsi. Well, it sounds like a good Sunday afternoon. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is working hard. He's, he's our advocate up there. He's also involved in giving gifts to men. Uh, he's involved in spiritual gifting. He's the head of the body, right? He's orchestrating the body. He's, he's doing things. He's with us. So... He hasn't been doing any. He's not like he's just sitting back on his recliner at the right hand of God watching Sports Center. He's distributing gifts to, to all of us that he knows is going to fit us best to fulfill our part in his mission. Think about that. Jesus has delegated his work to us. That's what he's doing as a leader. Sometimes it's good for the leader not to do everything, he's delegated it to us. He stepped back a little bit, he's still busy. But think about that. He, he's delegated the work to us, and we have a responsibility of doing, of doing his work. You think if Jesus was still here, we'd just be happy horses, just minding our own business, letting him do all the work, right, wherever he is. Don't you think it's a good thing that he left? 
now we sense a, a bit of responsibility, don't we? He's growing us through it. He's allowing us to be channels of grace, being ministers of reconciliation in the world. It's, it's pretty fantastic when you think about it. It's quite the privilege we have in this life. And after Jesus leaves, though, these disciples, they stand there looking into the sky and these two angelic beings. I guess we don't know who exactly who they are. Two men in white clothing. We know those can be angels. Some suggest it's Moses and Elijah, like on the, the Mount Transfiguration with the cloud again. We don't know for sure, but these two angelic beings, these heavenly beings say, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you still staring up into the sky? It kind of reminds me of Jacob's words back in Genesis to his sons. You know, there's a, there's a famine going on in Israel, and uh, his, he looks at his sons. He's got several sons still there, and he's like, what are you doing standing here looking at each other? Go get some food in Egypt. <laughs> I've got a friend, a choleric friend. You know, you know what I mean by choleric? He's like very goal-oriented and driven. And One of his favorite lines is, are we still here? In other words, what are we doing? He says that after church. Are we still here? Let's go get some food. That kind of reminds me of what these angels are saying to the 11 apostles. Are you still here? You've got a job to do. Let's, let's get with it. And I guess the angels could be saying that to us this morning too. Are we, we still here? What are, you, what are you doing still standing around looking at each other? Why are you still sitting on the bench? I've, I've given you all these gifts and talents and you're still on the bench? Get involved in the mission. Get, get into the game. You have a mission with your words and with your life, you get to advance the gospel. You get to tell people they can have their sins forgiven. You get to tell people in this one little life you got, you know, on, on this earth, this earthly life, you get to tell people they can have new life in Christ. You, you get to do that. You get to tell people they can have a new destiny and that they can have eternal life with God in indescribable glory that we can't even imagine. There's nothing more essential than that. Is there? You guys think the church is essential? It's the most essential thing in this world. Remember that as we go through Acts. Thank you.